Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. (laughs) Well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. Sherry, I don't know if you know this or not, but you can't control other people's actions. Are you aware of that? Yes, I am aware of that. How did you become aware? Um... Well, trying to control yours. I mean, I guess when the when kids are little, you can sort of control it. Yeah, I suppose that's true. But, you know, definitely there's a point in life where there's no controlling others. Yeah, especially when you are the spouse of an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. You uh, tried a number of times to get me to quit drinking or to moderate or to just be less of an asshole. Yeah. And that didn't go very well. True. Yeah, that did not go well. Yeah, so we we know that we can't control other people. And when you were in an alcoholic relationship, like you were, you were married to an alcoholic, Sherry. Do you remember? Yes, I do. Yeah, that leaves you with a decision. Should you stay or should you go? And that decision, which we've talked about, we had a whole podcast episode that was titled, Should You Stay or Should You Go? Or Should I Stay or Should I Go? That implies that the decision to stay or go is based on whether or not the drinker finds sobriety. If they find sobriety, maybe I should stay. If they're going to continue drinking, well, then my hand is forced and it's time that I need to go if I'm the spouse of an alcoholic. And what that does is it puts the power, the decision-making power really, in the hands of the drinker. You're either going to quit drinking or you're not going to quit drinking. And as you, as we've already discussed, as the loved one, you don't have any control over another person. So you're, you're kind of, um, I mean, you're, you're definitely a victim. That's not the word I want to use. You're, you're at the, the will of this other person and you feel powerless. Did you feel like that at any point during our relationship? A lot of the times felt very powerless. Like what you wanted didn't matter or decisions you wanted to make didn't matter. Yeah. Yeah, all of the above. Trapped, too. That's another word you would use, right? Uh, trapped to some degree, yes, with financials and having um, four kids that made you feel like you're a little trapped. And how would you support them in two separate households? Mm-hmm. So that made me feel stuck and trapped. Well, Sherry, we have a guest today who is here to talk about the fact that the power doesn't have to reside solely with the drinker and their decision whether or not to find sobriety and their decision on whether or not to find recovery, get help, actually work on themselves, not just be a dry drunk. They don't have all the power. You can stay and stay well regardless of whether or not the or the actions of the drinker. So let's welcome Lori to the Untoxicated Podcast to talk about staying and staying well. Thanks for being with us today, Lori. Ah, my pleasure. I, I know this is a topic that you're well-versed in, and we're going to talk about how you became well-versed in it and your experiences. But I think before we start with the decision to stay and stay well, we should back up and learn a little bit about your background and just let our audience get to know you. So Lori, tell us um, how the early stages of your relationship went? Was alcohol a big part of it? Were you a drinker coming into it? Was your husband a big drinker? Can you just talk us through 
the early stages? Yeah, so when we met, um, which just fun fact, we were introduced on a blind date by the uh, mother of his ex fiance. <laughs> oh, wow. Yes, and we drank at that first date because his first glimpse of me, I was bending over into my car to take out the beer that I had brought. And that was what he saw first of me. And he says that's when he first fell in love. <laughs> it was my rear end. <laughs> So um, your rear end and then the beer, he saw two things yeah. that he loved right away. And then, and then the beer, but um, actually, so in our dating and early in our marriage, I don't recall anything unusual at all about drinking. I mean, I wasn't a big drinker. Um, you know, I grew up with normal social drinking in my home. Um, I grew up in Wisconsin. We had a quarter barrel on tap in our basement. So <laughs> beer was just kind of part of life. Um, I did my share of too much drinking in, in college, but, but not anything crazy. In fact, I was usually the, you know, the least intoxicated of my friends. And um, so just dating, you know, we, when we went out to dinner, we would have a drink. We, um, he used to like to take me on picnics and, you know, we'd bring a few beers along, but I didn't notice anything unusual at all during our dating relationship and even in our early um, marriage. So does it progress and pick up? Is it, a, is it a slow progression or was there a sudden, you know, a lot of times people face a traumatic experience in adulthood, the loss of a parent or something like that. And that really kind of amplifies the drinking in a, in a dramatic way. Was it dramatic or was it just gradual? How did it happen for you guys? It was mostly gradual and it started with, um, you know, episodes of drunk and it was, you know, we would go to an event and he would get really drunk or we'd go to a party and he would get really drunk. And while that was really upsetting, you know, that felt again, a little bit normal. Yeah. A lot of people, you know, overindulge when they're at something special. Um, but then, you know, I started noticing at those events that, you know, he, he drinks differently than other people do. Like, I started noticing when he's drinking, he's on a mission to drink as much as he can, as fast as he can. And, and his pace was way different than everyone else's. And um, you started to see the effects of it way more than other people. And then some of those episodes started to collide with, you know, my job, we would have a, um, you know, a farewell party for one of the managers on the leadership team at someone's home. And, and he would get drunk. And one time, you know, my boss and a coworker had to help me help him out of the house into the car. And so that's when, you know, these episodes started really becoming problematic. Um, and then along the way, um, we both lost our jobs. <laughs> and I, I think it was probably even within a few months of one another. So, you know, we both had great careers, you know, high paying jobs. Um, mine was the kind of the dominant career because we moved for my career. And so I'd been with the company a long time. In fact, I was five years from, you know, full retirement, full medical benefits. So we were, that was part of our plan. We were counting on me working till retirement. And uh, one day my boss came in and said, you know, you're no longer a fit. Well, I was an HR manager. I know that's code for, um, we have absolutely no reason to fire you, but we want to do something different and you're in the way. So um, I lost my job. 
and at the same time was given a six month retention package, um, which that that's sort of crucial in a moment. Um, but then shortly after that, or shortly before that, I don't remember the order, um, my husband lost his job. His boss found out he was actually planning to start his own practice and his boss found out and said, go. So why that was significant is, you know, now we're both home all day. And, um, you know, I took that six months while I was on our retention package to plan out what I wanted to do. And I decided I also wanted to go to training to become an executive coach and start my own practice. So again, now we're both, we work from home, we're home together all day. And um, that's when I started to notice the day drinking. And so now the binges went from, you know, episodic and sometimes maybe episodic, plus he'd keep drinking a couple days after. Well, now it was, you know, episodic with, you know, maybe a week or more of ongoing drinking and drinking during the day. And, and that's when, you know, I realized, wow, this is, this is just not okay. This is not normal. You, you talk about the episodes of him getting drunk, but in between the episodes was drinking a daily ritual as well? Was there just a glass or two of wine or a beer or anything like that in the evening? Or was it restricted to the binge drinking? It was definitely binge drinking. And um, I always say, you know, that was a blessing and a curse because on the one hand, the times when he was not drinking, you know, we could kind of quote, get back to normal. Um, but then when he was drinking, it was, it was not at all normal. You know, we had other issues in our marriage from early on. So, you know, there was this also this cycle of, of silent treatment. I mean, we are both you know, avoiders and stuffers. And uh, when he was upset or unhappy with me, he chose to give me the silent treatment. So kind of had these two cycles going on. He, he binged for a little bit, you know, he'd give me the silent treatment a little bit. And, you know, somewhere in there, there were these times of normal. And that's what I would lean into and just enjoy that time. And, and, you know, they were good times. We had a lot of really good times too during that. But but that was the cycle. And I, I love that. I love that as you were describing the cycles, I wish this was TV instead of radio. You were doing the wax on and wax off from the Karate <laughs> yeah. Kid movies with your hands. This is this cycle and this is this cycle. It was really yeah. cute. Did I, I want to talk more about the silent treatment, but before we go there, did uh, one of the things that's usually a major seminal moment in relationships is when you first have kids often the the mom stops drinking or cuts way back and the the dad the certainly in our case i just kept on going was there any change in the pattern that related to when you had your kids mm, not really again I, I really wasn't a big drinker at all his drinking was still mostly social drinking he would drink when he went out with friends or if we had an event, but um, not not at home, not around me very often. And and if it was, it again was normal, one or two beers after dinner, something like that, or when we grilled out. So again, nothing highly unusual during the day. It was still more binges with normal quote normal in between. And no big divergence at childbirth. Okay, that's that's interesting. When you talk about the cycles of binging and then the cycles of the silent treatment that would follow, 
So was this because he had decided something that you said as a result of his drinking had offended him and that's why he would go silent for a period or was it shame and guilt that would cause him to go silent? It was usually my fault. And, and in fact, you know, I would stop asking, well, you know, what's wrong or what have I done? I mean, I always thought, oh, what did I do? And, and sometimes I would ask and it, it always came back to me. And so I just stopped asking because I, I didn't want to hear that. I didn't believe that it was because of me. In fact, sometimes he would even say, I'm sure you have no idea why I treated you like that because there really wasn't anything. I just decided to do that. So, so there wasn't really a reason. And we got very, very stuck in that pattern. And, you know, we're still working through that pattern. And when, and just so our listeners understand, when you talk about silent treatment, we're not talking about a few hours. We're, we're talking about no. days, right? That this would go on days. days and it's seething silence. So, you know, when we were both in the same room, you know, he wouldn't look at me, would walk right past me. I'd have a conversation with him about something, you know, functional we needed to talk about. He'd look past me. Um, it was, it was very hard and very hurtful. Yeah, I, I, I can only imagine. I mean, that in and of itself is a huge form of gaslighting because something, something's happened. You, you can't get the information about what it is. Um, obviously I'm not in your relationship, but, it, but putting myself in a similar situation because of my drinking, I can say there were many times where shortly after a binge, I had worked it out in my head that it was all Sherry's fault. Now, eventually I would come around to the fact that no, it was my fault. I'm the idiot who overdrank most of the time, maybe not all the time, but most of the time I would come around to that. But there were many times where I, the initial reaction was to blame Sherry. And the reason I would do that was it was the only way to protect my ability to drink and justify the fact that I could drink again. If, if everything was always my fault right away after drinking, it was just one plus one equals two at that point, And I've got to stop drinking. But if I can work this out in my head that it's Sherry's fault and not mine, well, then it's not the alcohol that's to blame. So I can probably keep drinking. It's, mm -hmm. it's a really, it's a very common kind of side effect. I think what you experienced with the duration of the silent street, silent treatment is not, I wouldn't call it rare. It's not super common, but um, I know that there are people that'll listen to this that'll really relate to that. So definitely thank you for sharing that tidbit. I just want to say like, I would, I probably would have prayed for a silent treatment, but then after we've gotten to know Lori and learned more about how that really is a form of mental abuse. Mm, yeah. You know, I'm thankful that we had lots of words to share because at least we were communicating. At least there was still something there. I think I would feel very hot. Like the relationship was very hollow and empty. So I, uh, I just can't imagine having like days of a silent treatment. That would be really hard. Absolutely. It's very, uh, I'm very, I'm very thankful that she opened my eyes to that piece of it since we never had anything like that in our house. Yes. Thank you for that, Lori. So were you heading, were you heading toward a breaking point? I was, and I, that's when I really started to seek help. 
And that was, you know, kind of what was also significant about me leaving, you know, my corporate job and starting my own business, I had more flexibility. So one of the first things I did was um, join a women's Bible study at our church. I mean, I, my faith is really important to me. And um, what was happening in my life drove me literally to my knees and drove me to lean into that much more. So um, that was really important to me. Um, I went to Al-Anon and, and I probably went three or four years to Al-Anon and that was helpful. I learned a lot. Um, you know, the slogans are really helpful. That was probably the first place I, I started hearing about, you know, you need to focus on you and not him. You know, stop obsessing, stop counting the drinks, stop, um, you know, bracing for what he's going to do and start working on yourself. So, so that was helpful. Although my particular group, there were mostly um, older women who were there because of their children. So I didn't really connect. I never found anyone I felt could be a good sponsor for me. So it, it served a purpose, but it, I, I still needed more. Um, I did a lot of reading, lots did, of reading. Did your did your husband know you were going to Al-Anon? No. Would, would that, I know, I just thinking again, back to my, my experience, had Sherry started going to Al-Anon, I would have gone through the roof, you know, because that means I'm being defined as an alcoholic. Um, and I obviously, and I also don't want our neighbors or our friends, you know, who's going to be at these meetings. I don't want anyone to know. Was that kind of the, the reason that you kept it quiet? It is. And, and after I said, no, I thought, you know, at some point I, I think I did tell him that I was going and, and probably because I was also getting some counseling now and, um, also had found a book, um, by Leslie Vernick called, you know, how to act right when your spouse acts wrong. And that again, started helping me see, you know, what I, I have a role in this. There's things that I can do separate from, from him. So I started, you know, to get some help. I started to open my eyes to what was really happening. And I think, you know, kind of the, the two by four between the eyes came when I saw a different counselor, someone had recommended that she was actually the head of, this was through our church. Our church has um, free counseling for members and oh wow, um, it was, it was wonderful. And uh, someone recommended that I see the head of counseling. And, and when I went to see her, you know, I shared my story and, she looked at me and says, well, it sounds to me like you are going to lots of counselors answer shopping. And so until you're ready to leave, don't come back to see me. And I until got you're ready car. to leave your, leave your marriage. Yeah. Leave my marriage. Okay. And I got in my car and I sobbed. I was just devastated. And I thought, you know, I came to you for help and this is what you told me. And I, oh, it just, it just broke me. But in looking back, she was helping me because what it did was um, kind of pull me out of what was left of some denial and say, okay, this is, this is really not okay. I was learning you know, through some of the reading I was doing in Leslie Vernick's website that just like you said, Sherry, the silent treatment is emotional abuse. This is not healthy for me. This is not okay. And that leaving was a choice and a choice that some professional thought was, you know, a good choice for me. So um, 
I really started to think about it. And that's when I started really feeling that sense of feeling trapped because I didn't want to leave. And I did educate myself about what would that look like? What does that all entail? And for a lot of reasons, I didn't want that. So I didn't, I knew staying wasn't healthy and I didn't want to leave and I felt trapped. Now at this point, are you talking to your husband? Are you using words like alcoholic? Are you asking him to quit? Does, does he recognize how much pain that you're in? Yes. Yes. And, um, you know, had again, through some of the counseling and reading learned, it's important to share how I'm feeling and how this, how I'm experiencing things. I did have conversations in particular, you know, after a bad episode, I'd sit down, you know, when you did this, I felt scared. I felt, you know, upset. It was, I didn't know what to do. This is, this is not okay. I don't like this. I don't know how much longer I can do this. I mean, that was, you know, as close as I ever got to threatening to leave or thinking about leaving was saying, and I meant it, like, I don't know how long I can keep doing this. And I had, you know, given him numbers of counselors, you know, okay, I, you know, when, when will you call the counselor? And he'd say, I don't know, I'll get back to you. Well, when would you, when will you get back to me? I don't know. I'll get back to you at some, I mean, it just never went anywhere. And in one time he did go, I had done some research and found a treatment center in our area. And again, it was a really bad episode that I think scared him and got his attention. And so he did go and he came back after the meeting and basically said, you know, I'm, I'm not addicted enough to be in their program. And that was really devastating for me as well. Um, and so I, I don't know what he told them. Um, that's just where it was. So that um, was probably the last time I overtly tried to get him to quit drinking because it just didn't work. It's interesting. It's good context. There's, there's definitely just a mental gymnastics style debate going on in our heads as the drinker as to whether or not we're an alcoholic. And I know for myself, I had those days where I would compare myself to the popular misconception of what an alcoholic looks like. I would think about the gutter sleeping or the bum sleeping in the gutter and peeing on himself and drinking out of a brown paper bag. And I would say, well, I'm not that. So I'm going to keep drinking. And then I'd have other days, like you said, a particularly devastating episode where I'd say, I got to rethink this. And at some point, you know, we talk about how you cross the line into addiction, but at some point you also cross the line into awareness of your addiction and you get to the point where you can't unknow what you know. Now, for me, it still took me 10 years to get sober after I knew in the back of my head somewhere in the, you know, the recessed corner of my mind that I was an alcoholic. I could, I could lock that tidbit away for periods of time, but it was always there. And so I think you explaining where he was at this point, he it sounds to me very much like he's in that mental gymnastics kind of back and forth on whether or not he needs to quit. So you're focusing on getting help for yourself. Um, I think that's really cool that your church has free counseling for people that, you know, that go to the church. That's, that's fantastic. Um, I mean, I know like in many cases, in our case, we could make an appointment and talk to the pastor and the pastor is a trained counselor, but uh, but that's taking it up a notch. That's, that's a pretty cool resource, what you're describing. So you're working on yourself, you're reading, 
you're going to the the therapists, a variety of therapists, and um, you know, is that just what continues? You keep working on yourself and keep digging and finding more more resources. Yes, and and again, I think that binging cycle plays into it. Um, and and to your point, Matt, about you know, did was he really aware? I, I think the binging helps him stay in a place that this isn't so bad because he would stop drinking for periods of time. In fact, sometimes months he would stop drinking. And for both of us, I think we just would settle into that period and, and be like, okay, let's enjoy this. This is good. And, and he probably felt like I've got control over it because I can quit for this period of time. And, and for me, I would, I always thought, wow, it, it, if he drank every day, I, I would leave. I couldn't tolerate that. But I, I got these breaks, this respite when he wasn't drinking. So uh, that was the curse and the blessing. You know, the blessing was it, it did make it tolerable. It did give us this ongoing time of good times. And it perpetuated us both probably to stay in denial and to not acknowledge really how serious things were. Yeah. Back to that popular misconception, an alcoholic has to drink every single day. So you are absolutely right. That would be the kind of thing that I would use to justify, oh, I quit for a week. Look at that. I can control this. No problem. Um, why would I ever stop? I'm in control. I can only imagine if he could go periods of time like you described between um, how much doubt that would put in his mind. Well, I just think about when you put all these rules around your drinking. And then one of your roles was you were not good. You call them school nights, but work nights. So you started out with not drinking on Sunday through Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, you were off work on Fridays. You, well, you didn't have to go into our bakery, Yeah, you know, but then eventually you worked Sunday in, yeah. you know, first, like we're going to stop at, you know, two or we're going to stop at six and, you know, but I would always think, okay, well, if he can quit and not drink on those days, you know, he's doing okay. So this is working. Even at the end, when you talked about, I can't drink anymore, even this last time, five years ago, I was like, why? It seems like you're doing pretty good. I mean, but I didn't realize all that it took for you to keep from wanting to drink or thinking about drinking on those days. Oh yeah. So much, so much effort goes into not drinking on the days that you, that I had self-declared not to drink and so much doubt about our status, our alcoholism status. So very interesting. So, okay. So you're, you're continuing to, to seek help. At what point you you've talked about reading Leslie Vernick's book. At what point did you really dive in? Because you eventually took one of her programs, right? Yes. So I, I found her website also, and, and it's, it's powerful. She has all these blogs um, cataloged on all different topics. And, and as a side note, she doesn't address spouses of alcoholics specifically. In fact, it's, it's not brought up a lot, but she addresses um, women in destructive marriages. And, and that was another, you know, kind of step forward for me is to she has a quiz that you take and you answer all these questions. And it's like, yeah, I'm in a destructive relationship. And, and so, so I was on her website a lot. She had, you know, she would answer people's questions and I found so much validation because I just look at the different topics and find something. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's, 
I can totally relate to that. And, and for me, because we were still, you know, secret, this was a secret. I, I had very few people, probably no one at that point that I talked to about it. All our friends were mutual friends. So for me to share what I was going through without him and, I didn't want to do that. And, you know, he has a business, he is, you know, standing in the community. I I saw that that could be damaging to me as well. And so I didn't have anybody. So her website and reading these letters and these books was just validation that I needed so badly for someone to just hear me, to see I'm, I'm not the only one. And, and so through that, I learned about, she has a program called Conquer which is um, some you know, personal work. There were some um, webinars and some kind of joint calls and then also um, a Facebook page for members. And I signed up for that program and it was a game changer for me because that's when I realized there's a third choice. You know, I'm still stuck in this. I only have two choices, stay and, and have all this struggle and strain and stress or leave. And I didn't want either. And she introduced this concept in the program of staying well. And, and that caught my attention. That, that's what I want. I didn't know I could do that, but that's intuitively, I think, what I wanted. And um, so her program was just so helpful. I mean, it starts with safety and security. I mean, that's of the utmost importance. And, and she walks us through an assessment of, you know, are you physically safe? What about your finances? And, and she's very clear about, you know, some people should not stay. This staying is not for everyone. So it helps you make an informed choice about is staying even, you know, even good for you. And, and it helps you. She has us go through and make a plan. If you do leave, what would you do? Where would you go? What about money? I mean, I hadn't thought of any of these things. And taking, um, you know, having a plan, even though I never wanted to use it and I never had to, that took away a lot of the power of that fear. And, and so that kind of does, the that was making this plan. Does the plan include, you know, we hear a lot of people talk about a go bag, like a uh, plan to leave quickly if you needed to, or is this more deliberative? Like if, if we've got to separate finances and sell the house, that kind of planning. It it was both. It was, you know, do you have a short-term place to go if you need to leave immediately because your physical safety is in danger? And then what would you do longer term? So it, it was both. One of the things that you've shared about Leslie Vernick's work and you, you alluded to it a little bit ago that I think is really interesting is making the, the differentiation between a destructive and a healthy marriage. Explain how advice that is sound and proper in a healthy marriage isn't so much in a destructive marriage. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes. And that's such an important distinction that she made and was also so eye-opening for me because I also read a lot of like normal marriage advice stuff and I'd read it and I think, oh my gosh, I, I can't do this, but I didn't understand. And, and so she clarifies, you know, there's a healthy marriage, there's a difficult marriage and there's a destructive marriage. And, you know, the destructive marriage has, you know, emotional abuse involved. That's what makes it destructive. And 
And there's a whole different set of rules and strategies and approaches for destructive marriages. You know, traditional marriages and even difficult marriages. And, you know, especially in the church, you get a lot of advice about, you know, try harder, be kinder, you know, submit to your husband. Well, you know, in a healthy marriage, those steps might be helpful to repair things. In a destructive marriage, you're feeding into the destructiveness. And so you can't do that. And, and so that is so important. And she is a huge advocate for that. And she actually does a lot of training of pastors and Christian counselors, because even still a lot of, you know, churches and and counselors will, will lead women the wrong way. And and they'll, you know, tell them to try harder. and, And, and that's really not the approach. The approach is get yourself well and get yourself strong in a healthy way. And so that then is kind of the next part of her program. Well, that makes sense because I would imagine that in a destructive marriage, you've often probably got narcissism, controlling behaviors, um, manipulation. And if some of the advice that, that you talked about that doesn't work in a destructive marriage, they are all somewhat submissive, you know, be nicer, be kinder, be calmer. Uh, that's just feeding, right? That's just feeding the fire of a narcissist or a manipulator. So uh, it's, it's going the opposite direction of what you would want to do. Very, very interesting. Very interesting. Um, tell us, tell us more about the, the conquer program and what you learned. So the, the next piece after the safety is, is clarity. And, you know, she acknowledges that's where I learned what gaslighting was and, and manipulation. And, you know, she said, when you're in this kind of relationship, you're confused, you know, your spouse is telling you something, they're denying what's real. They're accusing you of things. They're blaming you of things. And then part of staying well is being really clear about what is the truth. So we worked through things where we, you know, outlined our story where we looked at, she had us, Actually, um, she talks about the dance, you know, when I, when I was doing the wax on wax off about these cycles, you know, I actually wrote out how that happens, how, what are some of the leading indicators that one or the other of these cycles is about to happen and what do I do? And I saw, I do the same thing every time I play into it, I'm perpetuating it. And so while that's really hard, when you see you do play a role, that's also empowering because now I saw, okay, I can get out of the dance. I can do something different when I see the dance coming, or I can prepare differently when I see it coming. So, so that um, part of it was, was huge and so helpful. That's also the part where she encourages us to journal and to write down, you know, the facts of what happened, because often you'll doubt yourself the next, you know, was it really that bad? And, and so I would start writing down when things happen. And, and that also becomes, first of all, it was a way to process. I, I'm, a, you know, I'm a pretty reserved person. I'm not super emotional. Um, I can kind of quickly move past things. And she helped me to see I'm not really processing it. And that's um, important. And, and as a side note, that's what Echoes has helped me with tremendously is going back and really processing things and emotions that 
my, I was just trying to survive. I was just trying to hang on. And, and so now, so anyhow, I, I would write things down and that, that just gave me a sense of relief to just write it down, get it out of my head. And that was one thing I realized that I was doing. My head was always spinning with, you know, spinning, awfulizing, reliving terrible things that happened, um, having conversations in my head that I knew I was never going to have with him. And, and my head was just full of this negative downward spiral spinning. And so writing it down helped me to just put it out there and take it out of my head. And it also, if needed one day would serve as evidence. You know, you, you've got a little chronology, you have what happens. So that's a lot of the clarity piece of it. You know, and then, then it kind of moves to strategies and, and how do you speak up for yourself? Um, and she was so helpful and her blog has a lot of this too, where she'd almost outline like, here's a conversation you could have. And she gives you the words. I mean, that's the kind of help that I needed. I was just so lost. I, didn't, I wouldn't know how to approach this difficult, honest conversation. So she gave you know, some scripts and and, um, you know, I remember still, you know, the first time I actually did that, you know, I wrote it out just like she recommended and had a script. And then, you know, then I had to observe where we were in the dance and when's the right time because I can't talk to him when he's drinking because I learned that's not productive. And when, you know, we're silent, he's giving me the silent treatment. I can't talk to him then. So I had to and, and I just remember finding the time, having the courage, and actually for the first time, kind of talking about it. This is what's going on with me and, and what's happening. And, you know, I didn't make any demands on him. And, and the success of that conversation had nothing to do with how he reacted or didn't react. It was for me. And after I, I spoke it, I remember going for a long walk, and I just felt like, you know, like a bunch of rocks came out of this backpack. Like I've been walking around with a backpack of rocks and just a bunch of rocks came out because I just, I spoke my truth. I was, you know, I was respectful. I mean, that's very big part of her program is, you know, you be respectful um, without dishonoring yourself. And um, so that was just an example of one of the strategies that, that I learned in that program and able to put into practice. So I love that you said the success of the conversation didn't rely on his reaction. That's super important. I couldn't agree with you more. But what was his reaction? I got to know. I mean, you're starting to show some real strength where in the past your head, as you described, was just spinning. Did he notice this, the strength, you know, oozing out of you at this point? Yeah. Um, I mean, in the moment he would just listen and, Sometimes he, he would respond and sometimes he would apologize and, and say, you know, I'm, I'm sorry. I, yeah, I did that. I, I understand. I see how that affected you. Other times, you know, it was just more of a, a cold, you know, okay, are you done with me? And then leave. And he did tell me later that um, he hated those conversations and he actually resented me for doing that to him, quote unquote. But you know what? I am now strong and I'm like that. That's okay. I'm okay with that. I did that for me. That was healthy for me to do that. Well, and, and as we've talked about so many times, 
there were two factors in me eventually getting sober. One was my debilitating depression and anxiety that just grew and grew and grew the longer I drank and drank and drank. But the other one was when Sherry stopped caring and stopped wanting to hear what I had to say about my plan to moderate or how alcohol is part of a, a guy's normal life and you're blowing this out of proportion. When she just stopped showing interest, it caused me a great deal of discomfort. And that's the discomfort that led to my sobriety. So I think it's actually really great that looking back in hindsight, he would say that he didn't enjoy those conversations. That's fantastic. Although you were doing it for you in a way, realize it or not, you were doing it for him as well. That That's really cool. Is that, is that the sense you get looking back on it? Yes. And that's part of the duality of learning to stay well is you know, I did all these things for me because they were healthy for me. It didn't matter how he reacted. And there was also hope that it would have an impact, but that wasn't the goal, right? The goal was for me and I was hopeful it would have an impact on him and the decisions that he was making. One of the things that we talk a lot about is mourning the marriage that you wanted you know from the moment when he noticed your butt and you pulling the beer out of out of the car you know eventually the courtship continues you get married um he's happy you know you're happy that you've got this idyllic picture of what this is going to be and then you reach the point where it's nothing at all like what you thought and you've got to find all these resources including this the conquer program and and learn to change the way you process your relationship. Did, did you ever take time to stop and just kind of mourn and be sad about it's not working out the way I wanted to so that you could move on from that? Was mourning part of your process? A lot. And in mourning more looked like, um, how on earth did I ever get here? I lived my whole life to make good choices and to do the right thing. And, and, and how did I get here? I never in a million years would have imagined that I would have ended up in a situation like this. Um, so yeah, I did, you know, cry out to God a lot of times around that and, and, and mourn that. And um, a lot of, I, I clung to the Psalms. I mean, the Psalms are just very emotional and put to words what I could not express. And that helped me a lot to just process my sadness. And um, in fact, I just got a book recently and it's about lament. And so I, I, I think I connected with that book because maybe I have a little bit more of that to do. But um, yeah, so I, I did acknowledge that. I did, but it wasn't like a, um, I don't know how to explain this. It wasn't like, I wished it was different because I'm a realist. I'm like, well, it's not different. This is what it is. And I, I think that was also part of me getting healthy is accepting, you know, this is what it is. And my choice is to be miserable in it or to do my part to make it as good as it can be, to, to make myself as good as I can be. When you talk about praying and your spirituality, that makes me think that, like you just said, as opposed to, you know, why did this happen to me? It's what do I do with this thing that's happened? How do I get out of this? How do I grow healthy? That's, that's what we pray for, right? Yes. Yes. And, and now I can see regardless of 
why it happened. There may not be a why. Um, it, it grew my faith tremendously and it allowed God to work on a lot of things. He's still working on a lot of things in me. So it has been used for good. It has been redeemed through that. So when you talk about staying and staying well, what I'm hearing is this, the, the kind of cornerstones of that are your strength, right? You, and not reacting and not expecting the actions of somebody else to determine your joy or your peacefulness. Is that, is that basically what it all encompasses? Yes, very much so. And also, you know, don't harbor bitterness. That was another big acknowledgement of, you know, I was starting to become a person I didn't like and, and having thoughts that just were so unhelpful and, and, you know, negative stories. And so learning to acknowledge that and shift that and let go of that. It might be true, but it's not helpful. You know, that's a little mental routine I go through a lot. It's like, yeah, that that's true, but that's not helpful. I'm not going to stay in that thought. That's, that's just not helpful. Um, and also, you know, not engaging in behavior that I'm going to feel bad about later. That, you know, I don't get caught up in it. Don't retaliate. Don't yell. Don't say things I regret later because that's not good for me. That's now adding guilt and shame onto all the other emotions. So that was also a big part of it is, you know, stand tall, rise above it, behave in a way that honors yourself and, and honors God and is respectful to, to him and also learning compassion um, for him. I, I think that was a big turning point for me. I was so caught up in my own story, in my own anger. I wasn't even stopping to think about, you know, this must be really hard for him. He, he's a good man. I love him. He, him behaving this way and, and caught up in this cycle of alcoholism must be awful. And that helped me a lot to remind myself, this, this is not easy on him either. It gives you compassion and empathy, even as you're in the midst of the trauma of it all. Um, it, I, I can imagine that that would definitely make it easier. I like the filters that you tried to run your thoughts and emotions through. Uh, you know, is this, am I going to be proud of this later? Um, it, even if it's a negative thing, does it serve me to get stuck thinking about it? it, it it's just really practical. It sounds like it does. This isn't mystical frou-frou dust, you know, sprinkle this on it and everything will get better. This is very practical. That must yeah. have been how it felt going through the program. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's why it spoke to me. I'm a super practical person. And again, it's, it's transformed the way I think about everything. And, and I've become much more intentional and thoughtful and, and I make choices now. And so much of my life was just default. I, I, I was just, I was stuck. I was in this victim cycle and just things happened and I just went with the flow and, and now I'm choosing I'm choosing what I want to think. I'm choosing what I want to do. And, you know, sometimes I choose. I want to sit in a pity party for a while. I need that. So, you know, take the day <laughs> and do that. But it was a choice. And then I move on. And um, it's just really, really been helpful in so many aspects of, of my life. 
That's great. Thank you for introducing us to Leslie Vernick and the Conquer program. I should have done this at the top instead of now, um, but we do want to mention to our listeners that we will put a link to her website in the show notes. It's just leslievernick.com, L-E-S-L-I-E-V-E-R-N-I-C-K.com. And Leslie is an author, a speaker, a licensed clinical social worker, a consultant, and a relationship coach. And we want to thank you for introducing us to her work because you are a true ambassador and, and it, it is life-changing and we appreciate all that you've shared. Tell us about the current situation in your marriage. Um, Your husband has been sober for how long now? Coming up on three years. What was, you know, this is such an uplifting thing that we've been talking about. I don't want to dive back in. uh, (laughs) Was there a rock bottom moment? Like, how did he decide sobriety is right for me? He, he said it was him being sick and tired of feeling sick and tired. And um, honestly, I didn't know exactly when he stopped drinking. I didn't know it was a, a firm decision because he'd gone for periods of time of not drinking. You know, I noticed, oh, he hasn't been drinking. And by now I'm like, don't get your hopes up. Um, so we just kind of went on that way for a while and then, you know, started noticing he was, you know, gone in the evening at a certain amount of time every, you know, on certain days and, and kind of thought, Hmm, maybe he's, you know, going to AA and, and he's serious this time. And eventually, you know, I asked him and, and he shared that he, he had decided he was, going to get sober and, and got connected with AA. And I'm, I'm so proud of him. He's been really committed. He's very involved in AA. And uh, again, we're, he's coming up on three years, which is just wonderful. I'm, I'm so grateful. That's and it's fantastic. been really hard. I mean, that's a whole other podcast about early sobriety, but we're in a really good place now. And uh, next month we'll celebrate 33 years of marriage. That's great. Yeah, we, we don't want to go deep down that path of early sobriety, but it, it is, is it safe to say that sobriety doesn't fix anything? It just gets the kind of demon out of the way and allows for the work to begin. Is that how you feel about it? Yes, it's very safe to say that. And in some respects, it's harder <laughs> because the expectation even though Al-Anon taught me the bluebird of happiness does not take up residence when they stop drinking, I, I had no idea how hard it was, you know, what he was going through. And that's where I wish I had echoes at that stage. That would have helped me out tremendously because you've done a fantastic job of clarifying and helping reset expectations for what, what that's like. But yes, it was so- very hard. So Echoes of Recovery is part of your current and ongoing work to stay healthy and strong. Talk about other things that you do. Are, are, are you connected to nature? Obviously, your faith and spirituality is important to you. What does the routine look like for Lori to stay strong and healthy, regardless of what's happening in the relationship? So a lot of those things have become part of my life. You know, I, I start my day in you know prayer and Bible study. I 
I love to walk. I love to be outside. Nature is very um, healing and uh, just calming for me. So I do that a lot. Um, I have habit or hobbies. I love to read. I started, I'm teaching myself how to watercolor paint. So that's been fun. My husband and I are learning to play pickleball. So that's been interesting and fun. And lots of friends. Uh, that was another thing. I really leaned into friendships and nurtured friendships with girlfriends and you know people outside of our couple friends. I have some safe friends now. And, and so I that's that's all a big part of my life and in our life and enjoying traveling more. We're empty nesters. So um, we're going to a concert tonight and enjoying things like that. That's great. One of the things that I noticed in our relationship and we, and listen, we didn't do this on purpose. We didn't take any programs to figure this out. We did it wrong for years before we figured out how to do it right. But one of the things that happened for us is Sherry and I, I would say, I hope you'll agree. We are closer now. We get along better. Our relationship is stronger now than it ever has been from all the way back to the very beginning. And we're also both way more independent than we have ever been. I am, I was as a drinker and an early sobriety, I was a very jealous person. The alcohol just did that to me, clingy and jealous there. The, the, amount of time when I have no idea where she is or what she's doing. And I think vice versa is greater now than it ever was in our lives. And we're also closer. Would you agree with that, Sherry? Yes, I think so. I mean, personally, from the beginning, I liked not being as clingy and you were Klingon and not a Star Trek Klingon, I would call you. Um, so I liked having a lot of my independence. It is funny. There are times where I'm like, hmm, wonder where he is. And it's 730 at night. I'm like, I don't have any. I'm sure it's soccer. I don't have to worry about you like running around on me or no being at a bar. I anything. do occasionally when I'm running away late. I'm like, huh, it'd be kind of nice if she cared where <laughs> I was, <laughs> but she doesn't seem to. So I'll just come home well, when I come I, home. I feel like I've always been very trusting of that. But um, it is kind of ironic how... We have such separation, but it, it makes us closer. I think it makes you more interesting because then I get to know what you've been doing. Oh. I don't just see what you've been doing. I get to hear from you. And Excellent. Well, so I've got to imagine, Lori, as you gained strength and, and did all the things that you did to stay well in your marriage, that's got to make you just a much more independent person. Have you, do you, do you have, and, and I loved when you were talking about your hobbies, how you started to, to call them habits and then you quickly changed it. Anyone who's had any relationship to addiction doesn't necessarily like the word habit, even if it's, uh, even if it's appropriate. I love that you changed it from habit to, to hobbies, but uh, do you feel that that strength makes you more independent and that's part of what the success of the relationship is right now? Yeah, Absolutely. I've always been a pretty independent person, but a lot of those hobbies and things I did to escape him. And now the energy is different. I do them because I enjoy them and it's okay. And it's part of what we do. And he has a motorcycle. He loves to go ride his motorcycle. 
that's his thing. He has a friend that he has lunch with regularly and another one he goes to breakfast with on occasion. And, and the energy around that now is healthy. It's great. Oh, that's great. He has his things. That's good. I have my things. We're working on having more of our things now. Yeah. Well, I can, I can tell that it's working. You know, one thing I want to say, um, the, we really appreciate you introducing us to the, these concepts and the things that you've learned. You're a wonderful ambassador. We, Sherry and I have never met Leslie Vernick. I want to make it very clear. This is not a paid endorsement. Um, you were just enthusiastic about it and your, your enthusiastic enthusiasm is infectious. So we wanted to hear more and we thought what better way to hear more than to, to hear more while we're sharing it. Well, and I love that you offered that there was a third choice you know, stay or go or stay well. And that's a, that's a fantastic concept. Cause I mean, we all kind of try to figure out how to do it, but that there is a, there is a program and there are, there is support to, to give you those strategies and tools to, to do that. And I also want to thank you for at around Christmas time, you gave us a glimpse into your family and your family dynamic. And we can tell that it's healthy because I think it was your daughter's idea to do the yes. remake of the SNL skit, Saturday Night Live skit, Back Home Ballers, which Sherry and I are Saturday Night Live addicts. Also not a paid endorsement. They don't give us any money to talk about them. But the, <laughs> the video that you guys made of the Back Home Ballers skit was just adorable. And, and like you said a minute ago, when you talked about compassion and empathy and how you realize how hard this is for your husband, I got to see, what, what was it, a 30, 45 second video of a true family man doing his best to have fun with his family. And it just, it made me feel a ton of connection and empathy for a gentleman that I've never had, had a chance to meet. So does that fun kind of stuff take place around your house all the time? Or was that a really special thing? Yes, very much so. And, and he, he's the fun one. So he brings a lot of fun and goofiness and lightness and joy into our relationship and into our family. And our kids are that way too. So um, I'm glad you enjoyed it so much. That is, will always be a really special memory. We had so much fun doing that. And uh, yeah, I think that does, that's a good representation of time that we spend together as a family and what it might look like. That's great. Well, we wish you nothing but continued success, both in the relationship but even more importantly, as an individual on, on your growth journey and staying strong. And, and, uh, and we appreciate you coming on and sharing everything with us today. Oh, it, was, it was my pleasure to share our story, to give some hope and uh, to just express appreciation for what you guys do too as well. It, it's just so, so important. So thank you. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to soberevolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.